Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are working our way through lots of things that God is saying to Moshe on the mountain. And uh, what we have in this week's Parsha Truma. Uh, is that we have God instructing Moshe about the creation of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle. Uh, so um, those of us who have studied together, like we study this every year, uh, because we not only have the, the major instructions that Moshe gets this week uh, from God on Sinai, but we also get then a very detailed uh, list of that all that being executed. So it goes through the list again of every single thing that has to be done and what it measures and how it works. So together, the instructions for the Mishkan and the building of the Mishkan take up 14% of Torah. It's a lot of space given over to this whole business of Mishkan. So um, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on the theory of Mishkan. We'll get into it enough when we're in the book of Leviticus and actually are looking at how it functions, because you all know I love that stuff. Um, but uh, but I do want to kind of stay in this vein that we've been in um, of kind of looking at ancient Israel uh, as a character, if you will. Um, and like it's helping me understand the Mishkan a little differently. So rather than talk about theory, and we'll get to some details about it in a minute, but rather than theory in terms of why do we have a Mishkan? Does God need a Mishkan? Do the people need a Mishkan? I really want to focus on, you know, these last weeks, I've had a different relationship a little bit to these Israelites. Um, you know, we've talked in some interesting and different ways about them being ripped and torn out of Egypt, out of the only thing they knew. Imagine all the reference points that they knew. I'm going to show you some. Um, The reference points they had were the great temples built to Egyptian gods, filled with the most precious items, you know, items made out of the most precious stuff human beings have to offer, because that's what we do. When something is important to us, we spend our most precious resources on it. And so, you know, the people really have this context of gold and silver and lapis lazuli and, you know, other kinds of precious stones and turquoise. Um, Acacia wood was sacred in the ancient world. So all of these, so gold over acacia wood. So all, all these things that are incredibly and profoundly expensive is what they know from Egypt and huge, huge temples And think of the pyramids, right? These massive, massive monuments to the dead Pharaoh who has now risen on the other side of life as a god. Um, And so those those monuments were about the dead Pharaoh as a deity. And and so this this is the context that our character, ancient Israel, is coming out of. They're wandering around in the desert. They have this experience at Sinai. They say to Moshe, you go deal with God because we can't handle it. So then what we get this week is God instructing Moshe, okay, 
here's what I want you to do. I want you to build a portable Sinai. I want you to build a way for the people to carry this experience with them. So what we're moving from in that move is a God who lives on the mountain in the desert, Yudhevavhei. We're moving from that to now a God who's going to get carried around with the people. A God who chooses to delocalize from the desert and from Sinai and to join the people and to live among the people, right? The command is, have them build me a mishkan, a, a sanctuary, that I might, from Lishachain to dwell. Even in Hebrew, it should say, if you want to be specific about it, it should say, and I will, that I may dwell in it. It doesn't say that. The text says, and I will dwell. Usually the English is translated in their midst. That's not wrong. Among them. But, but literally, they could have said, the text could have said in it, meaning in the Mishkan, and instead says that I may dwell literally in them. And I don't think that's an accident. I mean, I know we've gone crazy with rabbinic interpretation about it, but I don't think it's an accident because I, I think the point of the Mishkan is not for God to be in the Mishkan. It's for the Mishkan to be at the center of the people and God decides to move in with the people. And when you think about that, character God is ready now to set up an apartment with character ancient Israel, right? If we've looked at ancient Israel as a character, this is, um, you know, this is, this is something, right? It's not going to be a huge temple structure and temple compound that will come later for the Israelites too. Don't worry. Uh, but, but right now, like the, the romantic idea is that God is going to move into a tent with the Israelites. That is a very different Yes, Dana, I think I haven't really gotten it quite this way before, but that's a very different model of relating to the deity than ancient Israel has known till now. Of course, they knew the, the forefathers and foremothers knew that they had a personal relationship. I get that. But the, but the character ancient Israel that we've been talking about and kind of building out with these texts doesn't know anything about this. And when you think about it, it's kind of odd. <laughs> like you're going to take these people and you're not going to give them a temple. Okay. So you're going to have them build a portable shrine that's going to be at the center. Everyone's going to encamp around it. And you, God, are going to move in to live among the people, bitocham, among them. That is a pretty intimate arrangement. And you will have the same colors, ancient Israelites, not to worry, that make everything special in the ancient world. It's going to be your most expensive stuff. It's going to be gemstones and, and purple and blue and all of these really expensive yarns and gold thread, gold spun into thread. You're going to have lots of gold and silver and copper. Nehoshet copper was very important in the ancient Near East for lots of reasons, but it's... um. 
you're going to have all that. But it's not going to be in some grand, huge temple that is static. It's going to be in a tent that, by the way, you don't see the inside of ever as an Israelite, ever. So you're never going to see any of this. But you're going to know from certain things that I, Yudhe am here. I'm among you. I'm with you. So, so that's, so that's where we're at. We're at this idea of Mishkan. The other thing I really was thinking about a little bit differently this year is the fact that this is requires such incredible artistry. So God is asking them to create the highest level of art that you can when you're schlepping through the desert. You can't make a huge mosaic gate for your place to live if you're schlepping through the desert. But everything that was possible to do at the absolute highest level of artisanry that is portable, they are asked to do. Think about what that is. What is art that's portable, right, in the ancient world? Weaving, um, overlaying things with gold, uh, right? crafting um, the curtains that are going to be beautiful. All of the accoutrements are going to be gold. Silver is involved in the rings that are going to hold the curtains. Gold's going to be involved in that as well. All the boards of the tabernacle are going to be covered in gold. So it's the most beautiful artisanry you can get that has to be portable. So I really think there's something here about beauty, a different kind of beauty than Egypt represented. And I'm not saying Egypt didn't represent incredible artisanry. It did, of course. I think there's something about the intimacy of art and beauty and the presence of God that is very different with the Mishkan than what the Israelites have been exposed to and what the rest of the ancient Near East was doing. Um, We don't know that the Mishkan ever existed. It could just be a romantic fantasy but I find it interesting that this is the fantasy, right? That's retrojected onto ancient Israel is this idea of a very intimate, very high level art work that is to represent the presence of the divine um, among the people of Israel. So those are just some of my rambling thoughts as we come to what can be a very dry, (laughs) very dry text. Um, was the intent then to push the people internalize the teaching as and yes, I think I think so, and I think I'm appreciating that differently this year, having looked at ancient Israel as a character and kind of what this character's been through. I mean, we always try to do that somewhat with the people, but <clears throat> yes, I think it's a way to make it real, to make it to make something that they've contributed to, they have to put themselves out. And, and use their skill, the people that are going to be um, crafting it have to be wise of heart. That is a characteristic that is necessary for anyone who's going to be involved in crafting the materials for the Mishkan. And when Moshe asks for gifts, truma, for gifts for this project, which happens at the beginning of the if that's going to happen when he's going to talk to the people and say, we, we need stuff. We need your stuff. If we're going to make this thing. Um, he he's asking Nadive Lave. He's asking only those who are our Nadive Lave, who are of willing heart. This is not a tax. 
that's going to come. A half shekel tax is going to come to pay for this building project. But, but, but not the gifts that go to make what's in the, um, what's in the Mishkan. It's going to be Nidive, Nidive those who are willing, voluntary of heart to give this stuff. I think that's critical to the Mishkan functioning in the way kind of Deb that you're suggesting maybe God, the character God wants from the Israelites. This is y'all's. This belongs to all y'all who chose to be a part of it. All y'all. This is not something that, you know, architects, you don't know from faraway lands, right? That we've schlepped in here, created. This is all y'all stuff. And it's people among you who are who are going to craft it into a um, into a mishkan, into a sacred um, representation of God's presence among the people. And it's a very different way to relate to this whole business than than they have seen or that they know. All right, so uh, Bert says, what does Bert say? So how do we get from the portable mishkan to the not? Okay. Well, because they become a settled people and want what everybody else has. <laughs> they want a king. They want a temple. Right. So, again, I, what's interesting to me is that this is the fantasy. This is the fantasy from people who were worshiping in a permanent, big, old, gorgeous temple. Right. Those are the people who wrote this stuff. People looking at a gold, gilded, huge, impressive, amazing cedars of Lebanon temple. These are the texts they bring forward and make the canon and make our sacred texts. Texts about Dafka, the opposite of a permanent temple, right? And I think for the rabbis, it's, it's very much people who now live in their beautiful Pacific Palisades mansion, and I've had this experience more times than I can tell you, more times than I can count. People who I'm sitting in their gorgeous homes in the Palisades reminisce a lot about their first apartment as a couple when they were eating tuna fish and rice and beans because that's what they could afford because he was in medical school and she was working to support them or whatever the story is. So much reminiscing about what? Not about the Temple of Solomon or Herod's Temple, God forbid, but the Mishkan, our tiny little apartment that we slept around in the desert when we were close and in love and had not yet completely disappointed each other and still found this exciting and new and intimate and amazing and um so yes, to your question, Bert, it's people who are worshiping in that temple who have these as their most romantic understanding of living in the presence of the divine vis-a-vis a structure. Uh, yes, they would have historically uh, mastered metallurgy. Yes, we know from all over the ancient Near East of um, the incredible um, artistry that went on with metallurgy. So we're talking about uh, ancient Israel is the Iron Age, Iron Age one and Iron Age two. Before that, of course, comes other metal ages <laughs> that, that result in um, metal work that's not iron. Um, you know, so it's copper and and all those other things. 
Um, and they would have mastered weaving and um, covering things in gold and all of that. Another aspect of this is that until now, God has been doing everything for the Israelites. Now it's time for the people to do something. I think, Rita, that is absolutely a critical component of that's why it has to be y'all stuff and y'all as craftspeople, because it's not going to be outsourced. Nothing about this is going to be outsourced. That's right. God has taken care of them. God has done everything for them. And now it's time for them to start being, I don't want to say responsible. That's not the word that they need to have agency. What is the definition of slavery? Really? Forget money, whether you're paid or not. What is the definition of slavery? You don't have agency. You have to do whatever the boss tells you. This is a lot of what hashtag me too is about, right? You, you do whatever the boss tells you because the stakes are so high if you don't that you can't afford to pay those stakes to pay that price. And that's, that's what the Israelites are coming out of. And I think Rita, yes, I think God is saying, okay, for y'all to figure out how to build a society based on what I'm going to call Jewish values, even though it's anachronistic, y'all have to start sensing, feeling, experiencing agency. And this first communal building project is one of the ways that's how God understands that they need to do that. What do they do <laughs> right while Moshe is up there getting these instructions? What do they decide to build? <laughs> right? They decide on a communal building project as well. But remember what it was? <laughs> right? The Egalaz Ahab, the golden calf. Right? So, so hold that in your mind too. God is up there saying to Moshe, here's my vision of how to live with this people. I'm willing to leave this mountain and travel with this ragtag group of nobodies in this beautiful little place together that I'm going to decorate myself, says God. And they'll move, I'll move in with y'all. And meanwhile, the people are over there building a representation of right exactly out of Egypt, exactly out of other places in the ancient Near East. Um, but I w- but I also want to go to that other interpretation we had because I have blown myself away with some new insights about that. But that's not now. That's for Parshat Kitisa. Um, okay. So David says, could God be saying that I'm going to accompany you to lead you on the trip to Israel where I will permanently reside in the temple that you will build for me? Yes. That is what God is saying. Absolutely. And Dana says, and the people having been serving the pharaohs to build, not as individual artisans who are offering their gifts and talents. That's exactly right. They're doing the schlep work of, right, of Egypt. They're not doing the, and there might have been some artisans that were Hebrew. We don't know, but it's all about Pharaoh's agenda, right? And all about glorifying Pharaoh and death. Remember, death was a very important thing in Egypt. That's what mummification was about. That's what the pyramids were about. It was all about preserving stuff for the afterlife. It was all about death. Um, so yes, the God of life says, that's right. That's not, that's not happening anymore, people. So the request to contribute to the building project has always been a part of us. Correct, Susan. This is what Stephen likes to say. Rabbi Carr Rubin likes to say, like, of course, we're going to ask you for money to build the sanctuary. Who else are we going to ask? Nestle? Kellogg? Buick? Like, who, who's going to build the sanctuary 
if not y'all. It just goes so far back in time. <laughs> right? And by the way, we're there again. Take a walk through the sanctuary. It is not a good thing. So we're looking at it. We're going to be looking at it again. The ark is falling apart. The carpet is so disgusting. It's not even funny. Um, it's just gross. Anything you see in there is so banged up. It's embarrassing. Um, and it's lasted 25 years, which is great. But anyway, um, so yeah. So, so Susan, we will be coming to all of you to say, would you like to contribute to refreshing the sanctuary? Um, what was the religion of the Israelites before the Exodus? They have secret shrines in their homes in Egypt. Mehmet, this is one of the topics that is in the mix in the running for my PhD uh, when I go back to school. But y'all promised if those letters come out of my mouth, you're going to take me up back and beat me till I come to my senses, right? Don't ever, don't ever let me get serious about that. Okay, so, um, right. So it's a big question. Traditionally, the understanding is the Israelites knew from their ancestors about yud heh vav They certainly know something about it from Moshe, but Moshe's late, right, in their experience. So if you take Moshe out of the equation and you're just talking about Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, what is their religion? The rabbis want to say they already knew a lot of Torah, right, even before Revelation. And so they were living Jewish lives even before the giving of Torah. And if you don't want to buy that, they were at least in relationship to this one invisible God thing and had rejected the pagan religions of uh, Canaan and Mesopotamia and Egypt. Y'all have seen that even within our patriarchal texts, as they are preserved, we have a lot of that stuff still there. So did they give it up? Probably not. <laughs> right. So we know they continued to worship the, the mother goddess in Astarte. Um, and so we know that that God has a consort, that Yudhe has a consort. And we see it in the Temple of Solomon, right? All of this stuff representing um, the goddess. So um, so probably we have a fantasy of what that was. And then we have what was most likely the reality, which was syncretistic worship. Um, and it gets patriarchalized. Yes, I saw that in an article this week, that word patriarchalized. Um, and then it's purified, right? You know, so then you have all these uh, prophets and people yelling and screaming and um, purifying the religion and houses of worship, like the temple from uh, that kind of stuff and those kinds of influences. And yes, they had shrines, right? They even think about Yaakov, think about our ancestors that, that we have stories about, they offer sacrifices on altars that they build. And we have found shrines all over ancient Israel with a matzevah, you know, a stone at the center, sometimes an asherah, um, but we have found them all over ancient Israel. So it was, it was a local practice to worship and sacrifice at the local shrine. Um, this is when we see in Deuteronomy the centralization of the cult in the temple in Jerusalem. That doesn't last very long, as we know. And when they split apart, there's a temple in Dan in northern Israel with two bulls outside that temple. Right. So very quickly. Right. They have another. T- so centralization of worship in the temple in Jerusalem was very short in terms of our history as a, as a people. Okay. 
uh, yeah, so I showed you amazing things about what the Mishkan looked like. Guess what? <laughs> I, also, I have it for you. Uh, okay. Um, okay. So if I didn't get to your comment, remind me later. Um, Mark Edelstein, yes, a hundred years was the was the unified kingdom. Took a while to centralize worship, right? So we don't even know it was a hundred years of centralized worship. Okay, people. Um, the creation of the tabernacle following separation from external objects may perhaps be seen as the representation of the internalization of the parental imago and early superego identification. Yeah, that's what Mark said. Yes. Yes, they are to internalize, right? That's why I think it's not an accident. The word bitocham is used. Let me dwell in them. They are to internalize God in a way, which is the real move against idolatry, by the way. The real mood of move, move. The real move of monotheism is not about how many gods you have. It's not about one. That is not what monotheism is. That is not the revolution that was monotheism. The big move, the big what is it called? Revolution that was monotheism was this move against externalizing the forces and powers of nature onto a deity that you then worship to propitiate that deity so that your crops didn't get wiped out right by hail or locusts, which happened all the time. So um, that's the big move. I think Mark is, is that, the Mishkan is a way to say, I'm with y'all now. I'm at the center. And each of you have to figure out now whether or not there's going to be hail or locusts that destroy, destroy your crops. It's going to be about, do you internalize the values that I claim are how you live in line with me? You have to figure out, Israelite, what does it mean to nefesh on Shabbat? What does it mean to resolify on Shabbat? We know what we're not allowed to do. doesn't tell us anything about what we have to do to resolify. You Israelites are going to have to figure that out. Each of you. Yes, I think that is the big move with the Mishkan and with this God concept in general that is a huge break with the way things were done uh, otherwise in the ancient world. All right. So our triennial division, and there's a lot of this stuff. Don't worry, people. There's a lot of this stuff. And we're going to get it all again when they make it all. These are just the instructions, right? So, um, so this is where we actually start. So you'll make a parochet, a curtain of blue, purple, and crimson yarns and fine twisted linen. It shall have a design of kruvim worked into it. All right. So two big concepts here. Parochet, a curtain that is going to divide the holy of holies from the holy. Remember the the measurements of the Mishkan, two thirds is just holy. One third is the holy of holies where the ark will be placed. And the the depending on which source we're looking at, the uh, tablets of the witness or the tablet or the Aserat Adibot, the, the 10 utterances. Um, in any case, um, the parochet is going to separate between the holy of holies and the rest of the inside of the Mishkan, the other two thirds inside the tent. The Kruvim are going to be both on the Ark. Remember, we have Kruvim on the Ark and we have Kruvim 
uh, on this curtain. Okay. What are kruvim? What do we have in English? Cherubim. All right. Cherubs. All right. Not what you think. Not what you think, people. I'm going to show you some images of kruvim. So if you look in the ancient Near East, this is the kind of thing we would be talking about. We are talking about a huge winged creature that is there to protect the sancta from any kind of encroachment, right? So this is the guard for the god. We have it all over ancient Greece. You know that, you know, think of what is it? The chalerefra, you know, <laughs> chimera, wherever it is. Um, we have it all over ancient Greece, Mycenae. We, we have it everywhere in the ancient world, Persia, Mesopotamia. This is the idea, not baby angels with big butts and bellies and big cheeks with bows and arrows help, helping people fall in love. This is what the Kruvim would have been based on. This understanding of something scary put at the entrance, and in our case, uh, over the uh, the Mishkan, uh, uh, sorry, over the Ark, and at the entrance to Solomon's temple as well. Uh-oh, what I do? This is the gate leading into the Mesopotamian city. Look at the works of the animals on that, on this blue mosaic tile, unbelievably gorgeous. This is Babylonian. And you get an idea of what we're talking about when you have the representations of the Kruvim. Now, one of you is going to put in the chat, but God doesn't want any representation. That Well, apparently, <laughs> apparently so. Um, I wanted to show you when we talk about Ezekiel's vision. Um, when we, so here, here's another one that I like a lot, right? So you get an idea that these are not happy, friendly things, the Kruvim. They are there to be frightening. And when they're outside Solomon's temple, this is kind of how I imagine them, right? You know, like really frightening. Ezekiel gives us, and Ezekiel's from a priestly family, remember? Ezekiel's the one who writes about the heads. Remember all the different heads? The four-headed um, cherub. The Why is it not opening this? Okay. The head of an eagle, an ox, a lion, and a person, okay? This four-headed creature. So this is how Ezekiel talks about his understanding of what uh, Kruvim are. Um, Here's another rendering of that. These are not happy, friendly things, (laughs) right? They are supposed to be majestic, and they are supposed to be a little bit terrifying on purpose. Is there anything else I wanted to show you? Oh, I kind of liked this one too. Ah, I kind of liked this one too, right? You see the different faces on this. I thought that was kind of cool. And the wings, right? And then this artist puts on there the nechosha, the and the nechosha, the um, the ah, breastplate of the. I'm sorry, people. I'm not feeling very well today. I apologize. Okay. Um. So hey, we're gonna me, look. Uh huh. Uh, the the blue on the Ishtar Gate, uh, yes. the one in Berlin, it's not far from crimson blue. That's right. So all of those colors 
when you're dealing with fabric, they are incredibly expensive, right? They come from the snail, you know, the marine snail. That only a tiny little bit of dye comes out of each snail's glands, um, and so so on fabric, it's incredibly expensive. It was understood to be very powerful in the ancient world. Um, that blue, right? Still is. Look all over, as you know. Look all over the Middle East, and you see, right, the blue being this color of protection, you know, at one time we would have said magic, right? So protection and power and all of that with fabric, it's because it's so expensive and because, you know, it's a power color, but yes, all over. And we see it all over the Israelite stuff, lapis lazuli, right? You know, God is described last week as being over a sapphire pavement, right? These are all precious, precious stones. Um, Judith, aren't the the Kruvim uh, on the carpet in our sanctuary? Yes. Also- so that is one artist's rendering of the parochet that the the Kruvim are the winged lion type things on the carpet in front of the ark. Um, Stephen found it in a book by an artist who had his own renderings. Um, it's not even close to, to, to purple and crimson and whatever, but right. It's one artist rendering. So, um, and it had to go with the rest of the decor of this, the sanctuary. Yeah, of course. And that so um, has gotten so much work. And I wrote earlier, I think the sanctuary is not disgusting. I think it's just tired from so much loving use. Yeah. And it's gross if you're in there. <laughs> well, it's gross. I don't <laughs> it's think really it's gross. gross. Well, try try to ask kids to sit on that carpet. It's I'm telling you, it's gross. I wouldn't sit on that carpet. Uh, I don't mean the carpet in front of the ark, but that's gross too because it's had so much spilled on it, and you can't take it out to be cleaned. It has yes. to be cleaned in place, and that's a problem. That's a real they, problem. They've all been cleaned so many times; they're beyond cleaning now. That's right. That's exactly right. So we have. So that means that's a whole right, a whole can of worms, as it were. All right. So what are you going to do with this? Oh, by the way, this parochet um, is very famous um, all over Talmudic literature, all over literature about the destruction of the temple, and all over Christian literature, early Christian literature. When Jesus is crucified, the parochet tears from top to bottom. Because now the way to God, now the way to the Holy of Holies the parochet has been opened by the body of Jesus being broken. This is all over early Christian writing, um, a beloved image by them. Um, and for us, um, the rabbis talk also about the, the kind of um, puncturing of the parochet. Um, so the, the parochet has a long and rich history in both rabbinic and Christian uh, writings. And imagination. And you will put it, the parochet, on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and having hooks of gold set in four sockets of silver. Hang the curtain under the clasps and carry the Ark of the Pact there behind the curtain so that the curtain shall serve you as a partition between the holy and the holy of holies. Place the cover upon the Ark of the Pact in the holy of holies. It is no, many people think it's no accident that kaporet. The covering of the ark 
is an anagram of parochet. It's the same letters, kaporet and parochet. People get them confused all the time because if you're not a Hebrew speaker, it's easy to confuse parochet and kaporet because it's the same letters just rearranged. So this is where we get the word kapara, um, lechaper, to atone, right? So Yom Kippur uh, comes from this, right? So you will put the kaporet, the atoning cover, the this, that which will cover their sin. And it doesn't mean cover it up, like hide it. It means like smother it out. Like the way you put out a fire um, on the, on the ark in the Holy of Holies, place the table. Now you're going to have a shulchan outside the curtain and the lampstand by the South wall of the tabernacle opposite the table, which is to be placed by the North wall. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue, purple, and crimson yarns and fine twisted linen done in embroidery. Make five posts of acacia wood for the screen and overlay them with gold, their hooks being of gold, and cast for them five sockets of copper. Now you're going to make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar is to be square and three cubits high. Make its horns on the four corners, the horns of a piece with it. Oh, I always do that. The the horns uh, of a piece with it and overlay it with copper. Make the pails for removing its ashes as well as its scrapers, basins, flesh hooks, and fire pans. Make all the utensils of copper. Make for it a grating of meshwork and meshwork and copper. And on the mesh, make four copper rings at its four corners. You need the mesh to catch stuff, right? Make the poles, overlay them with copper. The poles will be inserted into the rings so that you can carry the ark so that it's portable. Make it of hollow boards as you were shown on the mountains, so shall they be made. Let's look at something more interesting than me reading this. The framework of the tabernacle will consist of frames made of acacia wood. Each frame must be 15 feet high and two and a quarter feet wide. There will be two pegs on each frame so they can be joined to the next frame. All the frames must be made this way. Twenty of these frames will support the south side of the tabernacle. They will fit into 40 silver bases, two bases under each frame. On the north side, there will also be 20 of these frames, with their 40 silver bases, two bases for each frame. On the west side, there will be six frames, along with an extra frame at each corner. These corner frames will be connected at the bottom and firmly attached at the top with a single ring forming a single unit. Both of these corner frames will be made the same way. So there will be eight frames on that end of the tabernacle supported by 16 silver bases, two bases under each frame. Make crossbars of acacia wood to run across the frames. Five crossbars for the north side of the tabernacle and five for the south side. Also make five crossbars for the rear of the tabernacle, which will face westward. The middle crossbar, halfway up the frames, will run all the way from one end of the tabernacle to the other. Overlay the frames with gold and make gold rings to support the crossbars. Overlay the crossbars with gold as well. Set up this tabernacle according to the design you were shown on the mountain.
Using acacia wood, make a square altar, seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet long, and four and a half feet high. Make a horn at each of the four corners of the altar, so the horns and altar are all one piece. Overlay the altar at its horns with bronze. The ash buckets, shovels, basins, meat hooks, and fire pans will all be made of bronze. Make a bronze grating with a metal ring at each corner. Fit the grating halfway down into the firebox, resting it on the ledge built there. For moving the altar, make poles from acacia wood and overlay them with bronze. To carry it, put the poles into the rings at the two sides of the altar. The altar must be hollow, made from planks. Be careful to build it just as you were shown on the mountain. All right, so here is an artist's rendering of what the Mishkan looked like with, at the center with the presence of God as a pillar of fire. You see the altar, which is outside the, the tent. There is a barrier all around the entire thing because the Israelites are not to encroach on that, that space. Only the Levites and the priests can be in there. A rendering of the ark, of the altar, of the other stuff, the altar, the table for the showbread, the laver, the incense altar, the menorah, and the uh, Arona Kodesh, the, the holy ark. This gives you uh, the, the tents and its layers peeled away on part of it, so you can see where things were placed. You see one-third of it is the Holy of Holies, two-thirds is where the menorah, the incense altar, uh, and the table uh, were. And this is an understanding of the parochet, right? So you get, you get a sense of what it would take to make something like this and what it would mean in terms of how much dye that was so expensive, how much had to be used, right, um, to make a parochet like this. Um, and here you see um, the order of Israelites camped around the Mishkan uh, by by both tribe and by clan. So you'll see God, Ruvain, and Shimon at the south, but you also see the Kohatites, right? So that's a clan. Um, so the, the Kohatites and the Gershonites and the Merarites are actually going to break down and do the portage of the tabernacle. And here are the tribes that, um, that they are encamped with. Okay. So that's our little tour of the... Um, of the Mishkan. So we saw this, right? Um, the enclosure and the flank and the posts and the sockets, right? So all of this is the description about um, making the tabernacle. Um, and um, wait, I was wanting to show you one more thing. Where is it? A rendering of right inside, what it would feel like inside the tabernacle. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel that everyone who wants to may bring me an offering. Here is a list of items you may accept on my behalf. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. Fine linen. Goat hair for cloth. Tanned ram skins and fine goat skin leather. Acacia wood. Olive oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, 
onyx stones and other stones to be set in the ephod on the chest piece. I want the people of Israel to build me a sacred residence where I can live among them. You must make this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the plans I will show you. So in showing you that last one, I just wanted to like show you, I mean, it was, it was like right powerful. Like, you know, bring all this stuff, all this, they're just newly freed slaves who took this stuff out of Egypt, right? The Egyptians gave it to them um, and they bring it with, them. and now they're offering, this is the first time they've had anything, and they're bringing it forward, um, right, to offer to be part of this communal building project, to be part of this undertaking, um, to be part of this building, you know, a living room, a grandmother's mother-in-law suite, whatever, for God. Like that, I mean, the amount of stuff they would have had to bring forward. And then when you really read about how fine linen is made, like, are you kidding me? Like, that's crazy town. Like, you take linen out of the ground, and then you have to deal with that, and then you have to you have to make that into thread, and then it has to be polished, you know, and and flattened. And I mean, it's just crazy. So, you know, bringing a garment, you know, a, a big piece of fine linen was that's a lot. And so when you look at what goes into making the priest's clothing, when you go look at what's, you know, the breastplate and the, all that gold on the planks and the hooks and the copper and the silver and the bronze and the, right, it's, it's quite something to think of what the people would have had to be willing to bring forward in order to, to make this. So I was, I was reading um, something by a, uh, someone talking about art and about creating art. And it's from a book called the every everyday work of art. And she says, people take the skills of responsibility into their lives. When the work of art in its widest definition appears in their hands. That's very interesting. The skills of responsibility says this artist is taken into their lives when the work of art in its widest definition appears in their hands. This person connected art with responsibility. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, about agency, that the artist is actually like demonstrating responsibility um, and then talking about um, that they can be really frightening just to, to begin a piece of art, that it can be really frightening to put yourself out there Grown-ups learn to mask the vulnerability of those moments, whereas a child looks like they might explode or expire. Such tension indicates that you have invested your yearning in what you are offering. It takes courage to put it out there. It can even take courage to verbally put forth a sincere response to an unfamiliar challenge like an abstract painting. The work of art uses and develops that broadest kind of courage. It opens up the range of battlefields where we can be courageous to include the home, the office, the political arena, the internet, the classroom, the school board meeting, and the conversation in the kitchen. Courage is overcoming disengagement in all its guises. It is the commitment 
and the skill to participate. That is talking about art and I think is exactly the point of the Mishkan, that the people will have to be willing to invest yearning. They'll have to be willing to invest longing, right, into into this art um, and th- that this amazing thing that they're creating is inviting them into the courage it takes to create art as their representation of their relationship with God. That's that's just like super cool to me this year for some reason. That that art, Dafka, is how God wants them to engage with creating something that's going to represent God's presence. Uh, among them, that it is overcoming disengagement in all its guises, right? They have been disengaged from the work they were doing until now. They've been disengaged from the project until now, or maybe they weren't, but that's not the project anymore, right? So um, that they they are invited into engagement that takes a great deal of courage, and this artist defines that as that's what courage means, overcoming disengagement. And I wonder like what that means for us right now, this week, during COVID, during, you know, I mean, just, just kind of not living life as we normally do. And how does it speak to, um, how does it speak to how we bring that into, like she said, the office, right? A kitchen conversation, our, our, you know, board meetings are, you know, how do we, how do we do that? How do we bring that truly into um, the classroom, you know, the political arena? Can, can we figure out what that even means? <laughs> like, I don't know, it's kind of charged and I'm not sure what it means, but it was really powerful. I don't know. I don't know what it means. Um, all right. So uh, that's where we're at with the Mishkan. This week, any final questions or comments? Uh, Jody, you said something about making it with stolen goods. They were not stolen. That is where you have to leave an interpretation behind that they were stolen. The Torah tells us God disposed the Egyptians favorably (coughs) to the Israelites (coughs) and gave them all of this stuff when they, remember we looked at the word, Levakesh to request, borrow. Exactly. So they asked to borrow it or they requested it and the Egyptians were disposed favorably to them and gave it to them. So it was not understood to be stolen. You could call it plunder. It's not stolen. Um, And the rabbis go so far as to say this was recompense for 400 years of unpaid labor. And um, anyway, so I'm just saying that that's even Torah understands it that way, that they did not steal it, whatever we think. Judith? It seems to me that the definition of art that you just brought up means that art defines your values. Uh, If your value is strictly to show wealth, it's one thing. If it's to show devotion and connection, it's another thing altogether. So I agree with that comment completely, but looking at what our values are is really the key. Okay. Mama? Um, Amy, that, that's not a question about the tabernacle, but um, um, 
earlier about something that you mentioned, um, uh, that uh, the culture of afterlife in Egypt was so prominent, so important. It played a huge role. And we know that afterlife plays a huge role in Christianity and also in Islam. So we are the only ones in the region where the culture of afterlife doesn't play a huge role. Could that be a protest? For sure. For sure. I think it's a protest. I think it's a criticism, right, of focusing on the, the life that's not here, that's somewhere else, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> you know, and a focus on that is anathema to Judaism, unless and until Jewish innocent blood is running in the streets. Then there's much more of a focus on the afterlife and on Olam Haba, the world to come, right? Because there's only so much people can put up with and live with in a world and still find any kind of meaning in the concept of God. Um, and so and that's we had where, many of these episodes in Jewish that, history. That's right. And so that's where you see a lot of the writing about Olam Haba, the world to come. You see a lot of that when the Jews are super, super oppressed and, and murdered um, a lot. So, um, I mean, how do you watch your kids be murdered and then have any relationship to something called God? I mean, you know, like, so, um, so like everybody, their instinct then is to say, well, there's another world in which God will make this right. Um, uh, but in general, the normative trajectory of Judaism is to focus on this life. And then whatever comes next will take care of itself. If you've lived a good life here, you don't need to worry about Olam Haba because this world is created by a loving God. There is no separation from God. When we die, we return to the ocean that we've always been. You know, when, once we're done doing the wave thing, we go back to being ocean. And there is no possibility of separation from God in Judaism. None. None. And so you won't, you won't find it anywhere. Uh, when we talk about kare being cut off, it's about being cut off from your kin. It's not cut off from God. There is no such thing because um, it's impossible. Right. In, in Jewish thinking, it's impossible. Um, and so very much focused on what we do in this life and that this is the, this is the world that matters. And this is, by the way, the only world we can impact. When we get to Olam Haba, it is what it is. Right. That's the realm of God and the angels and whatever else you want to talk about going on up there. Um, but that's not a realm we can impact. The only world we can impact is, is this one. Dana? It's very quickly, you know, the beautiful art that demonstrates our values, you know, reconstructionism, Mordecai Kaplan talked about, you know, living civilization and all the art that's created. But it made me think a little bit about the Hasidim or other Orthodox uh, groups that like, you know, in their homes, there's no art in their sanctuary where they go to school. It's very blank. Uh, what It's like a total opposite of what this, section describes it makes me wonder how they view it Um, what what they did was focus on like so many fundamentalists that borders on if you ask me idolatry they take a piece of it and lift that up to be the most important thing which is no images no images right and so um so, so visual art is a temptation, is a, is a, it's, you sh- you shouldn't have it. It can lead to really bad things, right? Having those kinds of images around all the time. 
But what I would say is where their art is, is in song and music and chant and dance. And, you know, right, there, there's a lot of creativity within Hasidism and within those sects. It is just very, their interpretations of Talmud, their interpretations of Torah are incredibly creative, right? And dynamic and, um, and incredibly, like their, their creativity of thought is like wild, Um it just isn't in, in visual art because that's, that's just leading down a really dangerous path. I mean, and just, that's just a hunch, Dana. Like, I, you know what I mean? It's just it's from lifting up one, you know, one kind of thing as most important in terms of an ESOR, like a, that you're not allowed to do. And I think it just carried, it got, went way too far. Right. And the, and the fact that we shouldn't have beautiful things or, and yet there's a lot of beautiful Judaica created in those communities, you know, so right. Go to spot. Right. Go to the Kabbalists, you know, in Svat and look at the incredible gorgeousness of the art created in Svat, right, from a very, very orthodox community. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.